Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Well, Pastor, here we are again. Here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Here we are. How's it going? Well, listen, that is a loaded question. I know that you know. I know that you know this story. I do. Uh, It has. It has been a hell of the past 72 hours but but there's a big but the world has shown up yeah community is good people are good well let me say that our community is good our people are good yeah (laughs) and and you know for those for those who don't know who don't follow me on social media uh my partner and i were in the East Bay, we went there for a couple meetings, and uh, our car was burglarized, and all of our stuff was stolen. Even though it was in the trunk, it was without sight, you know, like it was stowed away. Um, our car was flagged, and, you know, someone broke in. Now, this is endemic right now, right? We, we are living through a global pandemic. These are crimes of desperation. Correct. People are suffering. Uh, Did we lose a lot of stuff? Yes. But at 9.30 p.m., we had already gotten to our hotel in the city. And it sort of explained that can you park the car um, in a place that this window, shattered window, is not visible. They were like, sure, we'll take care of it. Of course, you know. Because you and I traveled all the time, we have these hotel points. And so I could cash in on Kempton points and um, and it didn't cost as much. So we get settled. Aaron is making a list of uh, what we need because here we are. We're in a hotel. We don't have anything but the clothes on our back. We don't have a toothbrush, no deodorant, no nothing. Right. Aaron doesn't have any contact solution, et cetera. And so, you know, we discovered the break-in about 7.15, filed a police report, headed over to the city, um, and we get to the city. I'm on the phone with you. Meanwhile, uh, the Oakland Police Department is calling me while I'm on the phone with you, but I didn't know that because of the nature of the work that I do. If your phone number is not in my contacts, it goes straight to voicemail. Yep. I don't play. Yep. So, So you and I, you know, it's midnight where you are. Yes. And which should go to show just how amazing a friend I am. <laughs> Look, I mean, talking to me, this about talk, you. Talk, I'm not. You're right. But I was talking to your ass at midnight on a Saturday after you I were, had been had, at a birthday party. And I, you I, had just gotten home. Let me just say I didn't wake I you up. I know. I, you're right. It's not about me. But I, I, I. Yes. But for the world to know, if you need someone to partner with you in a moment, Anna is the person to do that. And so. I'm talking with you. We're trying to figure out what the next steps are and whatnot because my CPAP was gone, which I've been on for 20 years. Um, My medicine was gone, which I need to live. Right. Uh, And of course my clothes, which are replaceable, but the CPAP and the medicine were, were the things that were going to be the most difficult being out of state. Right. So I hang up the phone with you. Aaron has walked in the door. I have a voicemail from a from a 510 number, which I recognize to be Oakland. Right. So I press the voicemail. I start listening to the voicemail. It's the Oakland PD calling, asking if I had lost property. I didn't even finish the voicemail. I immediately <laughs> I immediately called him back. Hell yeah, I lost something. And and he answered, Officer Troop. Now I'm not going to get into whether cops are good or bad. We're not going to have that discussion. That's not what today is about. Nope. 
because I have opinions about that. Um, he called. Uh, someone had turned in my suitcase, and and in order to retrieve it, I needed to come back over across the bridge and pick it up. So at nine thirty, we headed out, and we got there about. And and this is don't forget this is past their bedtime. Like not yes. only yes. I mean not only are they you know on sabbatical in California, but they are like ready to strip down and crawl under the covers. I'm grandpa when it comes to bed. I know you are. I know you are. So I just want people to understand like you, you are committed to this work and to the work of getting your shit back. You were like, okay, I'm driving back out in this nonsense. I'm going to get my stuff. We didn't know whose suitcase it was. We didn't know if there was anything in it. We get back there. It's my suitcase. So he said, okay, open it up and see what you've lost. Everything was there the only thing that was missing were my allergy pills which listen people got allergy problems in the bay area mine developed in the bay area so you know fine i'm glad that my allergy pills are helping somebody we spent the next hour hour and a half with the police i mean we were there for two hours and you know i don't like to spend time with the cops last time i spent time with the cops they asked me if i was a terrorist so you know i've got opinions about these people um, anyways, we, we don't want to pass judgment too soon, but I do want to say we were there for two hours. Uh, he wanted us to drive around with him to see if we can locate Aaron's suitcase. So we did that. It was, it, and we, and Aaron and I both were commenting. The only reason they're doing this is because I'm not darker skinned Latinx and Aaron is white. That's the only reason they were doing this. Correct. The only reason they were helping us. Correct. And you know, we went back to the scene of the crime and Aaron is like, you know, if you were darker skin, Robin, this might turn into an altercation. And I said, I know. And it made us dark. You know, it's it's like 11 o'clock at night, you know, yeah. in an abandoned uh, parking lot. Right. So I didn't feel safe, um, but I had my bag and we're looking for Aaron's. We didn't find Aaron's. We went back over to the hotel and... We, we got back to the hotel at about 11.45. Now, we are exhausted because we've been traumatized. We're shocked. Yes. We've we've been violated. We know we've been intruded upon. And, you know, we were just trying to have a nice overnight in the Bay. Had nice meetings, a nice dinner with a clergy colleague, an activist. Um, and, you know, spending one night in San Francisco, you know, like maybe it could be nice, right? Because we've been tethered to our apartment to our four walls in Nashville. Well, that wasn't the trip that the universe had in store for us. So now we've got a broken windshield or a window, two windows, in fact, and one suitcase. So I was exhausted. I went to bed. Erin got maybe four or five hours of sleep. She was still really destabilized and, and really traumatized and, really terrorized i should say we got up the next day i called the Toomey store because as a traveler i invested in luggage that would be traceable trackable have a warranty etc and Toomey has been great went to the Toomey store um got all the information about the bag that was stolen Carolyn Reyes. I just want to give a shout out to Carolyn because she did all the legwork. She's an area manager working at the San Francisco Toomey store, helping that store out, did all the legwork, emailed me the receipt yesterday. Um, Amazing. So we're driving home now to where we're staying in the Central Valley. We've We've MacGyvered the car with a shower curtain and bungee cords so that we could drive. Did you take any pictures? Oh, like we've really? got pictures. Okay, we've good. got pictures. Yeah. Okay, good. I'll have, good. I'll have Aaron send you some. Yeah. yeah, I just, I really, I need, I need this in my life that yes. you were like, yes. you know, Jed clamping, clamping oh. down the, oh, down the yes. highway. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Driving in the right-hand lane yeah. at 60 miles an hour. Yeah. Oh yeah, we were. You were the, we were the, you were the Nashville, the Nashville Fresno hillbillies. <laughs> yes, yes, we were. So we make it back, and while we're driving, uh, Denise Segura, who who is a friend of ATP, 
I just said to her, hey, do you think we could crowdsource five or six hundred dollars to repair the glass? And and she said, yeah, I think we could crowdsource it and then sent six hundred dollars to pay for the glass. She said, keep the rest, start replacing Aaron's things. And I was floored. Um, now, six hundred dollars has has grown substantially mm-hmm. because people started hearing about this. I just put out one tweet. Mm-hmm. Um, our car was burglari- burglarized, and thank you to the person who turned in my stuff. So people started reaching out to me, right. and people wanted to Venmo and help. And then I and then I made a post saying, "If you want to help, here's how you can help." Mm-hmm. And people are chipping in $10, $20, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Some people are giving more. You know, people are giving what they can. Right. And it really feels, I mean, we're at Pentecost. Mm-hmm. And it really feels like an Acts 2 moment that people are giving what they can give. And I just want to say, this is the kind of work we are trying to do. Yes. We are trying to talk about what does it mean to be radically interconnected together? What does it mean? What does it mean to say we belong to and with each other? This is what it means. So right. it means that people are giving to us in a way because we have to front all the upfront costs to replace things. Right. Insurance will reimburse us, but the insurance only reimburses on a depreciated value. Now, We've had a lot of our stuff for several years. Right. So we may only get $100 or $200 when something was $500, right? Correct. That obviously won't allow us to replace everything that we need to replace. So what this community support is doing is bridging the gap between the reimbursement on depreciated value. And it, I just want to say it's women of color who are leading yeah. this yes. in the Venmo. And we need to be mindful of this because, you know, everybody in the world expects women of color, particularly black women, to be their emotional mammies. Mm -hmm. And we don't realize that it's women of color, particularly black women, who are creating conditions for for people to have access. So we sort of um, I mean, we're, we're sort of over the shock and, and terrorization and trauma of it. There are lingering moments, but we really are just considering this a redistribution of our wealth. I mean, we're not wealthy. I got two bennies to rub together, but we do have things. And we're just seeing this as a way of we are contributing to people who don't have access and and community is helping us reinvest in our stuff. I mean, Aaron lost all of their self-care stuff, which they need to make them feel safe and whatnot. Um, Their backpack, you know, makeup, et cetera, you know, anything that you would take for an overnight trip. Um, But thankfully, you know, it it turned out that I don't have to fight with insurance. I don't have to fight with the hospital to get my medical devices. So that is how I am. I am well, but I am recovering from a traumatic experience. Yes. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I re- like really. I'm. I'm good. Yeah. I mean, you've been amazing. You've been amazing supporting us through this. And let me tell you, y'all. Anna's a good pastor, and um, the United Methodists may not want her, but. Here, I know here. this Baptist does. Yeah, uh, thanks. Thanks. I appreciate you. Well, we are so I mean, you have you have um laid the groundwork for a, a host of possibilities around conversation today. Um, you know, we are in the midst of times where people are feeling especially uh, un- unnerved and as if they are needing to act in ways that provide them the things that they need that they may not act in ways um, at other times. Right. Um, we have a, you know, a government that is systemically making things harder on people that don't look like me. Um, and, right. and we are, you know, you have, you have exhibited and, and, and shown us an example of this kind of 
beautiful community that we have been imagining for years, mm-hmm. uh, the, the possibility around. And so um, I don't know where this conversation is going to go, but I am thrilled that we are going to share today with Marcy Alvis Walker, who is the founder of a, a website slash blog and uh, social media channels called Black Coffee with White Friends. Yes. And let me just say, when I discovered Black Coffee with White Friends, I was like, well, I'm not white. I'm white presenting, but I ain't white. Uh, I want Black Coffee with this person. And so we we kind of had chatted in our DMs on Instagram. And I was like, she needs to come on to the podcast and tell some stories. Because listen, y'all, if y'all are not following Black Coffee with White Friends, y'all better go there for us. Run, yes. don't walk, because it's the tea. It's the gospel tea. Well, Marcy Alvis Walker, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. We are really thrilled to have you. I am, I'm over the moon to be here. I can't even, I, I mean, come on now. I can't come even, on. How, how do I even respond? I'm just so blessed to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for accepting. Oh gosh. Easy. Well, we are, Robin and I are both fans of Black Coffee with White Friends, but we would love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about yourself, kind of what brings you to the work, um, what kind of work you're doing in the world, um, maybe a little, a little bit about how Black Coffee with White Friends started or, or what the impetus for it was. Um, why don't you, as I said, why don't you spill the coffee instead of spilling the tea and tell us all the things? Oh, um, well, um, I'm, I am a writer first and foremost, and, you know, I have been writing for a long time letters and things because I, I had a daughter I had, I had a black daughter in this world and my mother had died and I didn't know my mother's story. And that, that was really what I didn't want to repeat. I was like, I don't, I don't want to have to, I don't want her ever to have to wonder about me mm, or to, yes. have to try to put a puzzle together when mm. I was no longer on this earth. And I wanted, and when Trump got elected, I wanted her to know exactly what I was thinking. Exactly. I didn't want her to think that I was silent or that I sat back. And, you know, my mom was a Jim Crow daughter, you know, and yet I don't really know her story because she didn't tell it. And I think a right. lot of that has to do with trauma. Right. She was too traumatized to tell it. And um, she's part of Great Migration, all that stuff. But we don't really have a lot of those stories. And so I started writing letters. And as I was writing letters to my daughter, who was who we put into this um Christian Academy, very conservative, which I didn't know anything about conservative. And I, I came from this, you know, Baptist black experience. And I didn't know that there was this thing as conservative and aggressive. Mm. I didn't know anything like that. Ooh. And I lived in Chicago where, you know, I had friends who were of all kinds of different faiths and backgrounds and no one cared. So I didn't know that there was like a sect of the world that really cared what you believed and how you believed and you know you're just trying to put your daughter in a school to get a good education yeah well i put her in a school for her safety Uh i she had been bullied and she was getting bullied at a public school for being smart and being and making good choices and so um and the teacher praised her and used her as an example something that the teacher probably shouldn't have done and it just marked her they just mm. marked her as a target. And so we um, saw our daughter suddenly become, you know, this was the kid who wanted to get there to say the anthem. I'm like, you don't need to say the anthem and we'll get there when we get there. Like that, she right. was that kid, you know? Yeah. Um, she was the kid who looked forward to homework. <laughs> you know, she was, I don't know how she was my kid, but that was the kid that I had. And so I had this kid who suddenly was, you know, I'm picking her up from school and she's just not herself. Like, she's just not herself. And um, we were out to dinner one night and she just told us 
fourth grade, she just told us what was going on, that she was being pushed in the hallways and bullied and all the stuff. And, and 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 at this school, there there are other black children attending. So she's not the only black child, right? Not the only black child, and it wasn't about the color of her skin at all. Mm-hmm. She was one of the few black children, but it was a very diverse school. So right. there were kids coming, you know, first generation. There was a lot of um, um, not a lot, but for Texas, a lot of um gay couples, gay households. So we were looking, I was looking for what we left in Chicago. Yeah. And I found it in this school. And, you know, I wanted her to have just the experience of different children from different backgrounds. Like, you know, she had kids in her class where, you know, one parent was in um, jail. You know, that's my family. So I needed her to be like that. And when she started to get bullied, it was it wasn't just some name calling. It was on her person, like mm. who she, you know, like things like I think a kid told her that they were gonna cut off her. She had a big fro ponytail on top of her head, big afro, yeah. and um, it was her signature look. <laughs> yeah, they said that they were gonna cut it off. Look, I get that. I get that. <laughs> I understand the need for a signature look. I I yeah. just. Tell her own that. <laughs> yeah, so she was owning it, and and they told her that they were gonna um, cut it off and make her eat it and make her throw mm. it back up, and they were pushing her in the hallway, and all because she was all because the principal came in and asked the class who was be who made good decisions, and some kids said, "Well, Nadia does," and that just and then the teacher rewarded her for that and punished all the other kids, which was just bad teaching. And so the kids to get back at her just targeted her and it was getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And so I thought, well, I'll talk to the school. And they basically, their answer was not, it just wasn't sufficient. One was she can suck it up. And I was like, no, she cannot. (laughs) And, um, Second was, we can move the kids around, but we can't really stop her from being bullied. And I just kind of was like, that's not acceptable to me. I, I don't, I don't think that's acceptable. Um, so I didn't know what else they could have offered that would have been acceptable, but I knew that that wasn't. And so I was in a position that we weren't wealthy by any means, but we were well off enough that I could stay home and homeschool her. So the money of, of staying home and homeschooling her wasn't the problem. So I was just really bad at it. So, Because um, <laughs> all I wanted to do was like read The Hobbit. And yeah. Go to a couple of museums. Like yeah. Really bad at it. So, um, and she's, she was a, a smart cookie. And I was like, you know, she deserves to be engaged and she mm. I'm introverted. I can stay home all day, you know, me too, girl, me too. I don't have a problem with it. Now she was needing to be in a classroom. Right. And so I signed her up for, um, American heritage girls. Cause I'm in Texas y'all. I don't have many options. <laughs> yeah. So, and I couldn't get her into girl scouts because they said, if I did girl scouts, I would have to have to lead a troop. And I was like, I cannot do that. And oh. so, cause that means I'm going to take kids camping. I don't camp. Like, right, it's not right. Work. You know what my version of camping is? At a hotel. I know. And so we, um, we did American Heritage Girls at this church. And I noticed that there were these kids coming in in, in this uniform. And they all seemed so happy. And they seemed engaged. And they seemed, and I wanted my kid to have that. And so I got her into the school. We went through the, the hoops. Like, you know, you had the interview and you had the test and, you know, we did all the stuff and I never thought to check to see what the culture was. I assume it's Christian. They love Jesus. They're going to love my child, period. My faith was that my creed, I would say was that simple. Love God, love your neighbor. It's real simple, Right. And so, but when we got there, I realized that these mothers were just kind of losing their mind over me. 
And I thought it was because I was just, I'm like, well, look at that. Of course they're going to lose their minds over me. Like I was really feeling all that tension. And then I realized, oh no, I am the only black mom at this school. I'm the only one. And these moms who have adopted black children, they had no community for these kids. And they were hoping I was going to be this community. Uh Uh My daughter was also the only black girl in her high school, like, because it was from pre-K up. So she was the only black girl in the entire high school. It was a a mixed race girl and there was a, a black boy in the high school. But she was the only one with a black mother mm-hmm. coming from that experience. And so um, I put her in this school and I started to realize that the faith they were teaching her wasn't my idea of faith. So I started writing letters for that reason, um, just about her body, just about sexuality, identity, um, what pro-life really meant to me as opposed to what they were teaching, you know? And I still wasn't, I still felt that the payoff was okay because I could control the narrative at home, right? Right, right. Um, But I'm telling y'all, don't do this. Do not let an institution win out of your intuition, your intuitive feeling. Mm, That's that is gospel truth right there. It's so true. So I intuitively knew that this was going to be problematic, but the institution was like saying things about, you know, her getting into college and this, that, and the other. And I was coming from this background where my mom, you know, went to prison and that's where she got her associate's degree. And, you know, we didn't have that story. And I wanted my daughter to be, to, to be the first to have that story. Yeah. So um, I started writing these letters and then I started thinking, well, I might as well start writing letters to these white friends of mine too and posting that. (laughs) And and I did and I lost all those friends. Um, Oh, wow. No, I mean, yeah, I pretty much... Yeah, I'm not checking with any of them now. Yeah, um, wow. You know, and I gained some because the good news was that there were some moms who were just like, oh, thank goodness somebody is saying some things because I thought I was the only one, you know, not drinking the Kool-Aid of this institution. Mm -hmm. So so it actually gave me a new community. And then small community, we all left that school because some things went down with um, their creed. They wanted us to, you know, the, they were making the teachers sign all the stuff about abortion, sexuality, gender, all the stuff that was really messed up. Yeah. And we confronted the school, talked to the school, and we could tell that this was a money thing. So like whoever the big donors were, they were controlling right. what our kids were going to learn. And the funny thing is, is that I had a friend who, the woman who had started American Heritage Girls had left the school for different reasons, they moved to a different state and they come home to visit. And there was this day that I'm at, she come home back to us in the visit from Colorado. And she's like, girl, let's get together and have lunch, see how you're doing. And I loved this woman because we used to have these really great illuminating conversations about faith and I missed her. Um, and so I was so excited to see her. I planned to see her that day. She was going to go to school and meet up with some people that she wanted to see. And my daughter, I get this text from my daughter. She's having an anxiety attack, like a, a major one. Um, Cause she was struggling with anxiety because of all the stuff that we didn't know was happening at the school to her. And I, I somehow text that friend who found Nadia and brought her home. And we all went to lunch and we're out on this beautiful day. And she said to me, when you pay for an education, you are paying for someone else's idea and dream of what an education should be. Mm. And that's the truth of the matter. She's like, so whatever their agenda is, 
that's what you're going to pay for. And right now right. our agenda is to build this school and to get donors for that. And so whatever it's going to take for this guy to have this big, beautiful school that he wanted, everything else was going to have to suffer for that right. vision because that's his vision. So right. you have to decide, do you want to pay for the, their vision or do you have a different vision that you don't want to invest in? And it just really spoke to me that, well, I, I, I don't want to pay for someone's vision, especially knowing that there were so many kids at my daughter's school. And at the time, I didn't know my daughter was one of them. I didn't know that there was, I knew that there were kids who were struggling with identity, sexuality, gender. I knew things were happening because parents were praying with me as part of the prayer team and wanting me to offer up like these prayers that I was just like, well, no, I'm going to pray for you to see Jesus in your child. Should they never change? Because they're, they're not going to. <laughs> and, um, I also want you to see that there's love here. Like, just, just for real, right? And they put all the stuff in to this creed. It's like five pages long. And you had to sign it or the kid couldn't come back. And I asked, I said, well, what about the kid that is having sex? If a girl should get pregnant, everything that you have here about premarital sex puts the onus, first of all, on the girl. Second of all, if she should get an abortion, you basically just made it that she's never going to come to y'all, ever. And what about all the women who have had abortions? And you have this. So you're really saying that if a woman's had an abortion, they can't come to school. And this man told me that there were no kids having sex at the school, which was... They are naive. Not true. And that there were no women that he knew of who had abortions. I'm like, well, why would you know? <laughs> and, um, and then I said, well, what about the kids who I know... Um, have come out as gay, and he said, "Well, they don't have. They haven't had it. We haven't heard anything from them." And I was like, "Well, I don't know that you would, because this is all very. You, you're calling them an abomination. You're saying all this stuff. Like, why would they?" And he's like, "Well, you know, we will work with them in our counseling session. So it was all going to be very insular and." We got the hell out of there. A whole group of us, we just up and left. And y'all, the funniest thing is, at the time, I didn't know that my daughter was gay. I had oh, wow. no idea that my daughter was gay. I just knew that the stuff was wrong and I had a niece who was gay and I just knew that this was not Jesus, like that's yes. all I knew, and it, not even that. Let's just take Jesus out of the equation. It was not human, and I was like, "How am I going to raise this girl?" And my daughter's doing things like she's she's debating um, um, transgendered restroom use, and she's winning in her school. But then she's going to lunch, and kids are saying. Your theology's wrong. Um, kids, children are telling her, male children are telling her that she needed to go to lunch with them so that they could school no. her on where her theology was wrong. And my daughter is just like, no, thank you. I think I'm doing just fine. So, and the sure. teacher who was the debate teacher left the school too because of the, you know, but Nadia's getting A's and they're just thinking, how is she? How is she scoring? We're not supposed to be 40 cents. So there were all these things that were happening. Kids were doing things like at lunch, rating the, the um, who was most beautiful based on race, like white people, Asian, Hispanic, Latino, like rating them. What This was a, another popular white boy led thing that we didn't know was happening. Um, kids are getting permission from the one black boy who comes from no black family to use the n-word and my my daughter's having to fight again so there were all these things happening at this critical time of identity right when you're basically 
outside of this culture and civilization and earlier civilizations, my daughter would have been ground. So she's having this experience of a constant line of people telling her that she's a danger, that her identity does not matter, that the only identity that matters is this very white Jesus identity. And God bless her, she she didn't swallow that, but she also didn't know how to leave it. Because right. when we finally were going to leave, because she had asked to leave earlier, she had asked to leave in ninth grade. And I, I was like, nope, this is a great school. You're going to do well and it's going to get you a scholarship, this, that, and the other. I thought she just didn't want to do the work anymore. Um, and then by 10th grade, when I said, let's leave, she had like this little tiny group of misfits that she was friends with. And she, she finally found her little space and she was afraid of giving that up mm-hmm. because she would have to start over again at another school. Right. And I was like, I cannot put money in this place. And I cannot, I said, also, Nadia, I want, I want these kids that have not come to a full understanding to remember that we left that school because my wild imagination was that someday some kid is going to wonder about how that affected them negatively. And they're going to wonder, well, where were the adults who said it was wrong? Mm. And I wanted them to know that we were one of those families that said, right what's happening here is wrong because I've needed to look back and go with my own childhood and things that happened to me. The, the, the mind plays tricks and you wonder if you were right to be upset by it. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's helped me is that something that comes to mind, I'll go, Oh no, I remember that woman or that person helped me out and told me that it was wrong. So it wasn't just me believing it. And I, I, I didn't want to be just going along with the status quo because she was going to be able to put the school down. And you know what the funny thing is, is don't nobody know that that school, it's just a right. school in Texas. Right. <laughs> There's a million of them down yeah. there. Um, and she actually ended up going to a public school where she just, blossomed like day one just super diverse and um you know as diverse as austin texas can be that's all i can say and that's how that has always been the drive behind everything with black coffee white friends that's why i have mockingbird history lessons it's all been based on wanting to speak to the fact that there are so many of us who are too afraid to say, you know what, that's not that's not really checking with me because authority in the church or in these Christian schools organizations really silence you yeah. by making you feel like you're the only one. Right. And and you're not. You're you just not. And and that logic isolates all of us. Oof. And you know, and, and disconnects us from any sense of community, which is what is so problematic about white evangelicalism is that it it is a function of supremacy culture in its in its ability, its precise ability and strategic ability to fragment and separate us from one another. With the with the intention of of trying to make us think that the community that is being built by our acceptance in in that in that role right. in that submission is exactly what we need right right exactly and you know the thing that i i'm so glad for the experience because it showed me something that i didn't know was happening it it, it actually taught me to look deeper and to ask you know like i i used to just take people at face value if you told me who you were and just took it as face value that that's who you were But then when I started to get into these women's homes and um, have actual community with them, I would see, oh, this, you're saying one thing, 
but you're you're really not being that thing. And one of the things that I think is not talked about enough is the sense of fear. I call it white preservation because yep. more yep. this preserving of this safekeeping. And I can't tell you how many times I'd be in these prayer meetings and my eyes would fly open because <laughs> I'd be like, wait, did she just pray for why is she why is she praying that? And it was always something to protect their child from any harm. And it was such an oxymoron because I'm like, but you're 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 harming other people. That's fine. Right. But you want to protect your child from harm. You want to make sure your kid gets into the right school. And I was and those were the prayers all the time. And also they anything that challenged that, they just said, well, the devil's always attacked us. Mm. So it was this very strange existence of wanting to protect my child and not rock the boat too much because I want her to have friends, right? Sure. So I'm like, I can't get in there and just act up and then, you know, already we're, we're out because I'm this black woman married to this redheaded British guy with this black daughter and they don't know how to put us at a dinner table with themselves. Right. Right. Um, I can, I don't really want to go to dinner anyway with them. So that's okay. But I want my daughter to be invited right. to do whatever. I don't want her to feel isolated. So there were all these trade-offs constantly going on where I'm like, do I say something? Do I not say something? Do I say something? Do I not say something? And the big one was where I had to say something was, I learned that they were going to do slave debates. That was the big impetus was that they were going to do. I, and, it, and they said it just as cool as, you know, mm -hmm. gonna, Oh my God. <laughs> like I, Oh my God. And it was their like, sorry. debate. It wasn't, it wasn't like one, like, and I was set, stop hearing. It was like our meeting. It was like a parent meeting that set us up for what to expect in high school. And they were talking about how the kids were going to be able to um, do all this public speaking that they were really big on that, how they would be able to publicly speak and defend the faith. Like that was a big thing. Uh -huh. And um, I was like, okay, so we're, we're sat in this meeting and I heard the head of the history department said, and in 11th grade, they'll have their we'll have the annual slave debates where they have to vote pro and con, and I, mm -mm. they have to do both sides. And I remember just going, "Oh no!" And my husband and I were like, "We can't move on." So I started working with Latasha Morrison because um, really I thought I was crazy. I, I emailed her and I was like, "Is this crazy? Like, am I being? I'm not being crazy. That's crazy, right?" And she emailed me back and I didn't know her. I just, we lived in the same community. People kept trying to get us together. White people kept trying to get us together. And I was just like, we don't all like each other. I may not like her. You know, I right. need your other black friend and you think that we would be perfect together. But I don't know, Tasha, you know? So um, I was hesitant to meet her. But um, I had her information and she was the only other black woman I knew in all of Austin. So I just emailed her and I just said, hey, um, this is what's happening at my daughter's school. Am I crazy? Because I'm, a, I'm about to go up there and have some words and I want to make sure that I am justified in having those words, right? Which is so crazy because of course I was right, but that's the right. kind of that's the kind of brainwashing and, and right. that that happens where you you think you're crazy, right? You're being right. attacked right. and abused and traumatized, and you're thinking, well, maybe I'm just being too sensitive. So I I get this email back from her immediately, and the first sentence kind of cracks me up still was, "Yes, it's a problem, and I have never liked that school." And I was just like, "But dang." Wish I had known that. <laughs> like maybe, yeah. maybe I should have been friends with you a little earlier. Yeah. So um, you know, it was through that I got into a be the bridge group because and it wasn't that I needed a be the bridge group for 
to know what that there was racism and what to do. I wasn't there to learn. I needed a community because I was going to be on my own in this. And I talked to the teacher, talked to the school. They no longer do the slave debates. I don't know if when we left, they reinstated them, but she really did seem to genuinely want to change. And it, it just made more things more apparent. Like, and your reading list, there are no black books. There are no um, Latinx books. There are no books about sexuality. There are no, there are no books except old white men and right. To Kill a Mockingbird, which is the heroes of an old white man. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, what, what can we do about that? And then it was things like, why are the kids dressing up like characters from Huckleberry Finn? That, that's... Mm-hmm. Why are we, why are they dressing up, period? Like, what is that? And so it started to snowball and there was a group of us who started meeting to talk. Um, and they always seemed like they sincerely were go- wanting to do change, but nothing was happening. And to this day, I sometimes go and check to see what's going on. And it's still, it just has not changed. It's still very... Um, Yep, we, we're working on our diversity. They've been working on their diversity. My, my daughter's in college now. They're still working on their diversity. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, it's not something that you need to work on. I don't know. Right. What do you mean? Are you painting children different shades? Like, right. what do you mean? Right. You work on painting a fence or fixing an outlet. This is really simple stuff here. Right. So it was that kind of a thing that was happening. And, you know... When I started the writing my blog, I actually had one of the moms, the head of the prayer team, she actually reached out and said, I've thought about the name and I'm okay with it. <laughs> I was just like, what? Thank you. I didn't ask your permission, but thanks. <laughs> and, I told, and I told my husband, I said, I think she didn't know I was black. Like, I honestly think something in her psyche had put me in a different category almost like she knew I was black, but she decided I was not that black. And I, you know, you know, you know what that's called? What? Tell me. White supremacy. (laughs) (laughs) She, She had made a narrative of me that made it comfortable for her to be, to have me in her home, to be her friend. And then the minute that that was no longer comfortable, um, it's, it's strange because the, 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 the weird thing is that every now and again, I'll see one of them will start to follow me and then they'll unfollow me or something like that. So I know that there's this going around in circles in their head about it. But, you know, I've told them the truth. I told them, all the truths, like every truth I could think to tell them. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's on them what they do with that truth. And it's more fear than anything else. It's so much fear. They really fear losing all that they have. And so when we think of the Tower of Babel, and I talk about this often, the main reason that they're building this Tower of Babel isn't because they were just power hungry they were fearful they just come through a wilderness they just been through some trauma they just lost a lot of people and they decided now we are never going to be there again so much so we're going to try to reach god so that we don't have to go through this anymore and that's to me what the monolith of white supremacy is it's that we lost something back in england right our right to worship the way that we want we are going to build this monument where we never get knocked down and we never give in and we never have to um, come down from that tower because we are um, on the same equality as God. We have reached the heavens. And, right. and I think the sad thing about that is that so many people believe the monolith is so beautiful. The, mm-hmm. the, the tower is so beautiful and so attractive that they can't see 
that because it's because it's idolatry, natural. right? It's it's idolatry. Yeah. It's a completely unnatural structure, and so they miss yeah. out on everything that's natural and beautiful and should be happening in the yeah. world. You know? Yeah. That's I mean that's that's the that's the gospel right there. I am I am intrigued by the work that your that that Black Coffee with White Friends is now transitioned into do. I mean, I know you're a writer at heart. Like writing is writing and kind of sharing these stories and exposing these truths is really um at the heart of who you are and and at the heart of the reason that you that you started this work. Um your um, Instagram page is a beautiful. So I'm a designer by trade. I am uh, I am a, an aesthetics geek, and so I so appreciate the way that you lead and guide narrative um, on your socials with um, statements and quotes and engagements by folks that you respect by people whose voices uh, need to be heard um, people some people some some of which folks may know very well like Henry Louis Gates and Tony Morrison and others that people may have never heard of um, talk to me a little bit about kind of where your work stands now. So, so, you know, your, your daughter has made her way into adulthood. She's, um, I have got to think that she's learned well from you. She has, she has, um, un, she has come to understand who you are and the perspective from which you come. How has your work transitioned or has it transitioned into, um, kind of the next iteration of who your voice is, um, who, who you're seeking your voice to influence or impact uh, long-term. I'm still, I'm still trying to impact my daughter, um, honestly, and my sisters. But honestly, I, I, I don't know that she's learning so much from me. Maybe, maybe, you know, and I don't say that to be, I'm learning from her. I really, mm. I am learning from her what it was. I never had that. I, I went to an all white school, but I had weekends in my mom's black neighborhood and I would be gathered up by my, I had sisters and brothers, uncles, aunties. Um, I had a huge network of blackness. I went to an all black church. That's not been her experience. She's been stoked in this very white cisgender heteronormative thing that I didn't have. I had a mom who was wild. I had a mom who her favorite thing, I just wrote this on someone's, on a comment that someone had for that I follow. Um, my mom's favorite thing is to used to be the, on a Saturday morning when everybody would be pulling the cur curtains closed because Jehovah Witnesses were coming down the street my mother would invite them in, light up a joint, and open her Bible. That's what I grew up with. I grew up with a mom who housed people who had nowhere else to go. I had, you know, so my, I knew things that other kids didn't know. I knew a whole different world. And right. so I knew people who had to borrow you know, a, a dollar and a few quarters just to get a pack of Newports. You know what I mean? Like, I, I grew up a little differently than that. I knew um, I had uh, family members who were transgendered. I didn't know were transgendered. I thought that's just who they were. Um, I didn't know there was a name for that because no one ever made it anything different. I had... Um, my mom had a collective of friends and she was mentally ill too. So she would come home from any stay, any place with friends. So she was bringing so many different experiences to us that, and it's a marvelous thing that, so when people are telling me that these people aren't safe and this group of people aren't safe, I'm like, nothing happened to all five of her kids. People would have, 
died for us. I had that many more mothers, uncles, fathers, whatever, right? And my daughter just didn't have that. She had a very straight lace, you know, upbringing where there was no place where her weirdness was fully embraced, except for me. And I was a weird kid. Like I was really strange to my family because first of all, I was so, I was going to this white school and I loved the white culture. I was like, Duran Duran is my jam. And my sisters would just be like, well, it's not for me, but that's what she wants to listen to. And so we're going to give baby that album and she can have it and she can enjoy it. So I was always allowed to be my weird self, you know, even though they didn't get it. I remember once I asked my, daughter, my sister, didn't she want to live next door to Brenda Brampton? And my sister was like, hell no, <laughs> next door to Brenda Brampton. But I was never, you know, I was never made to feel different because of it. My daughter was. So when I think of Jesus, I'm thinking of her. When I'm mm-hmm. thinking of who do I want at my table? I'm looking to her to teach me to see better, to see more people, really. And that's still what I do with Black Coffee White Friends. It's still to this day my daughter. Yeah, you know, and and I just feel, and I don't know if if you are seeing this thread, but you're you're helping us have a very vivid image of what it means to belong to each other. Yeah. Certainly. Yep. And and that that is really that is really our problem right now. We don't we are forgetting that we bro- we belong to each other. Amen. Oh my gosh, yeah. That that is why white police are killing black people mm-hmm. and justifying it. Mm-hmm. That's why uh there there is almost uh a civil war in Israel, Palestine. Mm-hmm. We we are forgetting that we belong to each other, and you know the activist theology project and the podcast. We are just trying to help people get their hands dirty and create belonging, and try to recover the memory that we belong to each other. And I I think what you what you offer us is is a image of that. Mm-hmm. You know, through your writing and whatnot. Um I, I'm wondering what, what's next for you with you know hopefully we're coming out of the pandemic and mm-hmm. how do you how do you see or do you see black coffee with white friends evolving or changing now that we're in a new year? Well, recently I started Black Eyed Bible Studies, which is a Black womanist point of view of biblical things. It's not Bible study like what you've had before. We're we're using Toni Morrison and other things to, you know, talk about the Bible. And I do have a book coming out sometime. I don't know when. I wish I could tell y'all more. There's a lot with that. I had to switch publishers because... um, my daughter came out and I could not be with any publishing imprint that would not support her. Um, so I'm, that's why I me, mean, I'm learning things and I didn't want any mess. <laughs> so I went to them and I said, is this going to be a problem for y'all? Where do you stand? And they basically were just like, well, yeah, that's a problem for us, which is so Do you have a new publisher? Not yet, but my agent who is, Oh, she's so badass, y'all. She's 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 got it. So I'm confident. We've had meetings, and I'm confident it'll it'll be fine. And we'll be is, it, is your is your book faith based at all? It is. Uh, it's it's a memoir. It's, it's essays. In it's a memoir style, but it's essays. I don't get a whole lot of Christian living books. Like I, it's not like. Y'all, we're going to talk about Proverbs 31 and right. break it down. It's nothing like that. It's just how I see, you know, it's about my my life story and how yeah. Jesus has shown up in it. But it, it, I, I'm i not sure how, if it's Christian enough in that sense. Mm-hmm. But, 
Yeah. So, but she's a great agent. She's working it out. And um, I have Black, I have Mockingbird history lessons. So I'm still doing that. And we'll probably start doing um, a movie thing, a movie uh, festival for the summer where everyone will watch movies at home and then we'll get together and talk about them online. So some plans. Um, yeah. I, I'm taking it one day at a time. Like I, I got into this thinking maybe I have, you know, a handful of followers. Um, but I, at least I have everything written out for my daughter and it's turned into something more and that's cool and all. But at the end of the day, I just, I just have to decide what it is that I want to leave behind and, and what are the projects I want to write. Um, and I do want to do more for children um, mm -hmm. with Mockingbird history. I do want to do more um, literary things because I feel that a lot of the writing out there that is Christian is more like how to live and not just beautiful and literary and just a good right. book, you know? Right. Right. Um, so I would like to do more of that. And we'll see. I, I have those plans right ahead of me. Everything else is yeah. a blur, a complete yeah. blur. And I'm old, derp. I'll say that. <laughs> and, um, you know, I came into this. Same girl, same. In my 40s. I was in my 40s when I came into this. I'm going to be 52 this year. So I'm I'm not messing around. I'm just kind of, you know, we, we start a project, I go to the next thing. And my husband, I say we because my husband's my designer. He's a... Oh. And so I dream... And I direct, I guess, maybe a little bit too bossy. And um, listen, you know? it's the best way to be. <laughs> I some 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 of the people closest in my life boss me around. You're talking, you're talking to one of them right now. So it's the best way to be. <laughs> yeah, you make me blush. <laughs> <laughs> I am. So Marcy, um, what's the best way for folks to get engaged with you? I mean, obviously the website, White Coffee with Black Friends, uh, your Instagram page. Um, I know you have a Patreon, which is where, you know, some of your content lives. Um, how would you encourage folks to learn about what you're doing to, to, to get in touch with you, to kind of be a part of this community that you're building so well? Okay, well, I would say if you are, just dipping your toe in, hang out with me. Black Coffee White Friends, you know, on Instagram. That's the only social media that I have. If you're wanting to learn um, more about our history and how that impacts our politics, how that impacts race, how that impacts so many things, why we the people was we the people, but just only a certain group of people, you can support me on my Patreon and that's Mockingbird History. Um, and if you really want to find the Magil Day and every person and everything that you see, because that's where I'm at right now, that would be Black Eyed History, Black Eyed Bible Studies. But all that's on my Instagram. It's all in the link. Cool. So you can go there and you can see it all. You've got a link tree there so folks the can kind of all there. You know, look through yeah. all of that stuff. That's amazing. Um, and, and, and I hope folks, you know, if you, if you've listened to this, uh, you know, we, Marcy and I just cross paths on Instagram and this is how we weave together this web, this generative web that we can belong to each other. And so please friends, Go and follow Marcy at Black Coffee with White Friends and check out all the offerings there. You will learn something. I learn something every day. I laugh. I cry. I cringe. And I hope because of Black Coffee with White Friends. And as a Latinx, uh, you know, Latinx people and Black people, we have a hard history. And I am all for Black Brown solidarity, uh, which is why we try our best and, and, and have as often as we can black folks on this podcast uh, so that we can build that web of interconnectedness so that we, we can really practice this belonging. So Marcy, thank you so much for being with us. Um, I hope when we get to Texas, 
hopefully we can cross paths. Yeah, well, come, I'm not in Texas. Come to come to Chicago now. We have to get up to oh, Texas. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, well, when we get to Chicago, hopefully we can connect. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Amazing. Yes, Marcy, thanks again. This was lovely. I'm so glad that you said yes. Um, really grateful that you're that you spent today with us. Um, we are gonna continue on, friends. There is a lot of work to do in the world. Um, we have not at all touched on some of the um, horrible things that are going on across um, across the world, um, but we touched on the one thing that is most important, I think, to Robin and I, which is figuring out how we build the kind of sustainable and regenerative and radically loving community that is going to save us, that is going to help us tear down systems of of oppression, and that is going to then rebuild those systems in generative and holistic ways so that all of us are free and all of us have um, a graciousness of of spirit and an equity with one another that can change the world. So continue your work. Um, follow us at Activist Theology. Don't forget that Activist and Theology share a T. And we will be back with you next week um, with another amazing guest. And until then, Dr. Robin. Let's get free, y'all. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. Oh,